This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, someone I have known for many years, 20 plus, and that is Rabbi David Foreman. Rabbi Foreman is one of the most interesting and innovative minds in the Jewish educational world today. He is a pioneering, groundbreaking thinker in the area of biblical studies, an unusual expertise and methodology for someone of his vintage and his religious persuasion. As a very traditional yeshiva-trained Orthodox Jew that brings great illumination to the text and really opens up the world of the Bible to so many students and listeners. Rabbi Foreman was teaching classes for many years. He was teaching at Johns Hopkins and eventually with the patronage of the Hofberger family, founded the Hofberger Institute for Advanced Torah Study. And in recent years, he has run the Aleph Beta website, which features animated videos which really belie the sophisticated underlying content. So these are videos and material that is popularly accessible, can be appreciated by people of all ages, and yet is rife with brilliant and beautiful Torah content. Rabbi Foreman is also the author of a number of books, and we'll touch on those as well. But meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening to this, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you may be listening. And please spread the word to your friends and family about this Jews You Should Know podcast. Comments, suggestions, sponsorships to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with Aleph Beta founder and biblical scholar. Rabbi David Foreman. We are here with Rabbi David Foreman, the founder of Aleph Beta, which is an incredible, cutting edge, very innovative online platform for learning about Judaism, for learning about the Bible and, and the Torah, which we'll get to. But uh, Rabbi Foreman is someone I've actually known for many, many years uh, as well in my own life, and probably going back at least 20 years, I would say, if not, if not more. And I heard him recently on another podcast that dawned on me that, my goodness, I must get him on Jews You Should Know. So here we are. David, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ari. It's great to have an excuse to talk to you after all this talk. <laughs> That's right. I think I last saw you, you probably won't remember this, but I, I tend to remember weird um, run-ins that I have with people. I, we ran into each other somewhere in the Catskill Mountains. Maybe it was the uh, Shenandoah Mountains, but in a small Jewish pop-up convenience store operates during the summer you were there with your daughter for some camp thing and i was visiting my daughter in camp visiting day sounds like Camp visiting day exactly which seems like a while ago given all of covid and things like that um but anyway so let's take it from the top and i actually don't myself know your whole um background story i know so much of your work but i'm really curious where you grew up and kind of how your own personal uh life unfolded yeah, Ari. So actually, I grew up right around where I am uh, hanging out now. I'm in Palo Alto, California, where we took a kind of COVID sabbatical. I was born actually in San Francisco, believe it or not. And my family kind of hung around the Bay Area, really, until I was about 14 or so. My dad was a psychiatrist. He taught at UC Berkeley at a private practice. Actually, interesting story. He was he was an Air Force officer, and um, and uh, in the Air Force, he was an he was an engineer. He worked for NASA right around here at Moffett Field, working on the Apollo program, on the reentry phases of the Apollo program, the heat shields. So if you ever watch Apollo thirteen and the heat shield, like that was my dad was. So on he was that. both an engineer and a psychiatrist. Yeah. So first he was an engineer for a while. He married my mom, and um, my. My grandfather was an engineer, so he was very happy to have an engineer in the family. 
Uh, my grandfather worked in the shipping yards for the Navy on battleships. And uh, then one day my father took my grandfather into the kitchen and said, I have news for you, I don't wanna be an engineer anymore. So he said, what are you talking about? He says, I want to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> so, <laughs> that you, you need know, a psychiatrist, you know. <laughs> and he dropped it all and he went to medical school, you know, and came out 12 years later as a psychiatrist. So, you know, a remarkable kind of journey. He was debating actually between a psychiatrist and a rabbi and he chose psychiatrist. And uh, I learned a lot from him in my younger years. He was very, wanted to kind of teach me everything he knew. Unfortunately, he struggled with cancer. He actually probably got cancer actually as, as an engineer working um, in the 50s. He was working uh, with a nuclear reactor in Illinois. And back then, I don't think they knew as much about the dangers of that as now. Um, but the cancer took a while to manifest itself as about 20 years later. Um, and so when I was growing up, he was struggling with cancer. And he eventually died when I was uh, just before bar mitzvah, actually. I re recently was uh, just, uh, my great aunt passed away and I actually did her funeral in Los Angeles. And I just got yesterday a note from my cousin who sent me a copy that my aunt had lovingly preserved of my uh, bar mitzvah station, uh, which I did in calligraphy, which the cover was Bedima of Arena Yitzaru, right? In uh. tears and in joy, we shall reap. At the time, it just seemed like a nice verse that my mom happened upon that seemed appropriate because we were in the middle of mourning for my father and it was by Marbitsa. And then uh, lo and behold, I married Rena. So- uh, Oh, interesting. <laughs> right? It was uh, kind of serendipitous in that kind of way. Anyway, so, um, you know, my dad was a huge influence on my life. Maybe he knew that he wouldn't be around forever and wanted to teach me as much as he knew at a young age. So- uh, my kids joke with me that I make a mistake of uh, incorrectly estimating their years old in terms of the kinds of experiences that I expose them to, the running joke of the family. And maybe it came from my dad who treated me like an adult from a very young age and tried to teach me a lot. Um, so my kids joke about how uh, I read Charlotte's Web to them when they were like three years old and they got to the part where the spider dies, you know, destruction <laughs> of death. And, you know, my wife here is screaming from the next room and they wanted to hide the book and, you know, never, never have anything to do with it. They were, felt they were too young to deal with that level of emotion in a book, you know, but that was my, my youth. I grew up around here. Uh, I went to a one room schoolhouse in Hillel Academy, kind of, it was, uh, my parents had helped found the school. It was, uh, they found the principal and teachers and it was uh, 13 kids in the sixth, seventh and eighth grade boys and girls all together. I was the valedictorian of the eighth grade with all of five kids in it. So it's a great accomplishment. You know what? You could say valedictorian and nobody will ask, you know? <laughs> exactly. And actually my first public speaking came when I was valedictorian. I had to give the valedictory speech for the eighth grade. It was the first graduating class of uh, Hill Academy. So it was like a big community deal. There must've been like 300 people there. It wasn't just to celebrate us. It was to celebrate the school. And for some reason I had it in my head Maybe it was my parents, because uh, my parents were public speakers in a way my father was. He had a certain way of speaking that I found really captivating. Uh, even now, I, you know, you hear tapes of him. He spoke in a very intimate and personal way. It didn't feel like he was rehearsing or reading for a script or anything like that. He felt like he was talking to you, to every single person in the room. And he was sort of being revelatory about his own personality, his own life. And it was just a very intimate, engaging encounter. For, so I think I sensed that at a young age. And I wanted to speak like that. But, you know, when you're 13 and you, or you're 12 and you've never spoken before, it doesn't work that way. You can have that ideal, but you actually need to build up your skill to be able to get there. And I, I hadn't done that. So I, you know, I scoffed at the idea of like writing out a speech and reading it. I was insistent that I just had to write these little note cards and bullet points and kind of speak extemporaneously from the heart based upon them. And that it wouldn't do to like rehearse your speech because then it wouldn't be genuine. You had to really just speak from the heart from your notes. And I was quite sure I had it down. And so there I am speaking and it goes well for the first three minutes. And then I get to this part and for the life of me, I can't remember what the transition from point four to point five is. I just can't. I have no 
idea. And I don't quite even remember what 0.5 is. It's a little bit too basic in my notes. And so I stop and I pause. And if you know anything about speaking, you know, like the worst thing you can do is just stop speaking, right? You, uh, this, hence the filibuster is born. You know, if you don't know what to say, <laughs> just keep on talking and it'll come to something, right? But you can't just stop, like dead airtime. And so here there are 300 people in the room shifting uncomfortably in their seats. And it's 10 seconds and it's 20 seconds and it's 30 seconds, a full minute passes. And I'm sitting there and like thinking like, did he lose his voice? Is he dying? Is he, you know, is he gonna choke? Like, and it was just the most excruciating two or two minutes or so that I ever felt until I just like started talking about some other aspect of my speech and then finished by saying it was an utter disaster. So much so that, you know, in Baltimore, Rabbi Shlomo Porter, if you ask Rabbi Porter, he'll remember this. Ask, he was there. He was there, really? Ask him what it was like. So it was my first ignominious uh, start. And you look, you know, they talk about, you know, life isn't about failure or success. It's about being willing to pick yourself up off the floor and try again. So at least I was willing to pick up myself off the floor and eventually. Yeah, that could have been a traumatizing, you know, experience that would have precluded you from future speaking, which would kind of curtailed your entire career. So it's exactly. good that the you know resilience to keep going. Um, right. I'm curious, you know, what was the Bay Area like Jewishly back then? It, you know, even now, it's not terribly robust. I mean, Palo Alto obviously has a community. Uh, it's funny enough, I just released a podcast today with a guy named Dennis Ban, um, who spent a good amount of time in Amic Bracha and the Palo Alto community over there, and he speaks of it very fondly. Um, in Silicon Valley, but San Francisco itself doesn't have a, you know, a, a large community, you know, but you said your father had maybe wanted to be a rabbi potentially. So there was obviously a strong connection there. Right. So first of all, my parents did not grow up Orthodox, right? So neither of my parents did. So they weren't, so when I talk about rabbi, I don't even know what denomination that would have been. Like, a, you know, that wasn't exactly, the, and the reason why he didn't is because he didn't have the Jewish background for it as much as he sort of liked the, the idea theoretically. The Bay Area was was certainly Jewishly poor. It, there wasn't a lot going on here. My father, Oliver Shalom, actually was instrumental in the House of Love and Prayer with Shlomo Karlbach, believe it or not, which was one big thing that happened in South in, in San Francisco in the late '60s. So my um, that's surprising. I don't I don't picture like an engineer psychiatrist vibing with. He was like the resident psychiatrist for the House of Love and Prayer. He mediated disputes. He you know. And there certainly was a lot of psychiatry work to go around in the House of Love and Prayer. <laughs> Legend has it, I think it's actually true, this is Arya Coopersmith writes this in his book about Karl Bach, that uh, my father actually was the one who rented out the Shattuck Hotel, the top room of the Shattuck Hotel for Shlomo Karl Bach's three-day teach-in at the Berkeley Folk Festival in 1967, I believe it was, right? He, he has, the, the story goes is that Karlbach came to the folk festival and made a huge splash. He was a real hit and everyone kind of danced him off the quad at UC Berkeley back to his hotel. And he had all these people gathered outside his motel room kind of singing and like dancing. And so he said like, Hevra, you know, let's learn together, come back. And, my, and the Shattuck Hotel was like right across the street. And so my father rented out a floor and so he did like a three-day teach-in there. And that was like the beginning of the House of Love and Prayer. I have memories of the House of Love and Prayer when I was like four years old, Simcha Torah there, pounding headaches while there was all this, you know, dancing downstairs. But as a whole, there wasn't a lot going on. You know, there was a there was a Jewish school called Hebrew Academy in San Francisco that I went to for kindergarten. Mrs. Lipner was my teacher, the principal's wife. From there, I went on. Again, my parents started this school in Oakland really from scratch. And, and look, one of the nice things is it's sort of nice being part of something small because everybody really does make a difference. You get a feeling of community. My father, you know, is like chief bottle washer and everything. And he, his father back in Chicago where he grew up had a, had a car business. And my father was very handy and could fix a car blindfolded. And so he went and he bought the first school bus for Hillel Academy used from an auction for $500 and he tooled it up himself and, you know, and, and that was our school bus. And they wrote a guide to Jewish life, my mother and father together. He actually wrote the section on death and dying, interestingly. And it was small. There was a Jewish community in Berkeley. We eventually settled in Berkeley, California, where 
uh, Rabbi Yosef Leibowitz, who was a really strong influence in my life, was the rabbi. I, at a young age, I took to listening to his sermons, which gave me a taste of the possibilities of, uh, of kind of depth in Chumash, not just sort of Shalashudah's Torah, not just sort of, uh, you know, coming up with an idea here and there, but really, really looking carefully at the text and seeing patterns illuminate a story behind a story underneath the surface of the text. The beginning of that for me came from him. My father was very close friends with him. You know, the rabbi lost a child very early in life. I remember it was a, my father kind of helped him through that. It was very, they were very, very close. You know, it was a small community. There was maybe 120 families. Maybe you had a hundred people there for Shabbos. But it was a very powerful influence on my life. The as, When I lost my father, I remember I, um, the other men in the community, there was kind of a rotation of Balei Kriya, people who read from the Torah on Shabbos. And so they kind of ushered me into that, encouraged me to learn Parshiot. And I thought that was great. It really felt like I was one of the big boys now. And I, you know, I would lay in on Monday and Thursdays. I would do the Parsha. I would do it on Shabbos sometimes. It was a wonderful experience. And the truth is those Parshiot, I also remember to this very day. It was a, one of the little tips and tricks I would give to anybody who wants to really get involved in serious learning of the Bible is do that or encourage your kids to do that because the more you have at the tips of your fingers just in terms of the text and the language, the more you'll be able to see those kind of patterns and interrelationships between texts emerge. So in a way, I got my start in all that stuff back in Berkeley as a kid. So what did you want to do early on? Did you have designs on becoming a rabbi? And, you know, obviously, you know, your father had passed away. You were somewhat, sounds like a precocious young man interested in ideas and learning and an ill-fated early attempt at public speaking, but, you know, you picked yourself up. What were you thinking that you would do early on? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, early on, I don't know that I thought about it that much. You know, being a seventh or eighth grader in Berkeley, California, in those days, certainly in the milieu that I was in, was a very organic experience. You didn't plan as aggressively for the future. You lived the present. You know, there was an old Joan Baez song that she got from Bob Dylan called I Live One Day at a Time. Yesterday is dead and tomorrow is blind. I live one day at a time. And so, you know, the, the Jewish version of that is, you know, Hahova Keheraf Ayin. Right. The past is gone. The future isn't yet, right? The, the, the present is just like a, a blink of an eye. So why worry, right? So there was that sort of hakuna matata, why worry mentality. So that was a part of it. But I think in my head, I was interested in cultivating a lot of different, I had a lot of different interests and I didn't really want to sacrifice any of them. So I was interested in doing something that would ultimately combine them, but I wasn't quite sure what. In my early years, I thought maybe I would join an advertising agency and do that, as strangely as it sounds. Um, I thought maybe I'd be a journalist, maybe I'd do that. I really enjoyed writing. I came to enjoy speaking. I enjoyed creative writing. I enjoyed the creativity of storytelling. Again, that goes back to my father. My father, you know, back in San Francisco, where we went to shul, not always Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Karabas, but sometimes Rabbi Traub shul. So if you've ever been to San Francisco, you know that going to San Francisco is like, I think there's a Bill Cosby. I don't know if you can say Bill Cosby's right, name. You can't say the name anymore. <laughs> a routine about the hills of San Francisco, yep. right? I mean, like the hills of San Francisco really are roller coasters. It's, yep. it's the most frightening thing in the world to rent a car and drive in San Francisco. You literally think you're going to fall in the bay at every moment. It's just, you think you're going to fall in the bay. So we had to brave those hills walking back from Shul. So there were like streets that literally did not have sidewalks. They had stairs. You couldn't have a sidewalk. You had stairs. So I had to walk like 500 stairs back home from Shul every week. So like you're, you're seven years old, what seven years old wants to walk 500 sets of stairs. So my father used to regale me with these stories and he was a great storyteller. So I got kind of the, to me, storytelling interested me and how you, how you kept someone's interest in a story and developed it and the, the, developed the mystery in it. So I was kind of interested in that. Um, I was interested in psychology, I think from my father also. Um, and I was interested in Torah um, and I was interested in art. I was a calligrapher. I had learned calligraphy from David Moss. I don't know if you've heard of David Moss. I have not. Uh, but he's, yeah, he's a world famous calligrapher. He has a Haggadah, which is amazing. His other stuff, which is amazing. 
Anyway, he lived in Berkeley at the time. So I, you know, as many, as many of these things as I could, I was interested in kind of putting together. If you recall from our Neri Yisrael days, um, I did a master's. I was the first guy in Neri Yisrael to do a master's in the Johns Hopkins MLA degree with the Master's of Liberal Arts, which was really, I call it a history of ideas degree, but what it really was, was an interdisciplinary smorgasbord of sort of humanistic thought and liberal arts ideas and history and sociology and psychology and, and biology and literature and just everything you can imagine. It was all of Hopkins' best professors in these areas would do these seminars that would try to weave together these different themes across disciplines. And so that really appealed to me. I was an interdisciplinary kind of guy. And so I wanted to do something with that, but I wasn't sure what. The rabbinate sort of appealed to me early on. I did a stint as a rabbi early on uh, in Olney, Maryland, you may know, right? Sure. And then there was a time that I left Olney, and I remember my wife joked that that was my midlife crisis, because in my head, it was always like, there were two things I thought I could do. You know, one was Olney, and the other thing was Art School. I worked as an editor for Art School on their Gemara project for a number of years. And I remember when I did the Art School project, it always felt to me like such a privilege to do, because it felt to me like something you would do at the end of your life. Like, you know, if you, like, as a capstone to a life you will live, <laughs> you could translate, you know, the Arts Girl Gamara. And I thought, like, what a good way to go out of life, you know? <laughs> and here I was doing it at the age of 23. And I thought, that doesn't make sense. What am I doing this at 23 for? Right. So I did that for a number of years. And then I was a rabbi. And then I, I kind of left the rabbinate and I felt like I'd done Arts Girl already. And I really felt like, this midlife crisis, like, where do I go from here? What should I really do? And I remember I was about 30 at the time, maybe, maybe a little bit more. I was going to apply to graduate school, maybe in psychology and, and do that. And then this invitation came to speak at Bibelow. You remember Bibelow back in the uh, day? Yeah, my wife, I remember when I took my wife on a date and we were still, it was still around in the, uh, in the little shopping center over there. I don't even know if Bibolo is a real Latin word, if it means books or something. Right. But, they, uh, but there was this bookstore called Bibolo, all of us shalom, no longer exists out there. Uh, and if you remember, Bibolo at the time, this is back before really the heyday of the internet, it's before Amazon put Barnes & Noble out of business. It's really before, and in those days, bookstores like Bibolo were kind of community centers. Um, in a way that you don't really understand now, but they were sort of community centers that people would gather for cultural events and things. And it was 1996 and Bill Moyers had just launched his, uh, his TV show on PBS, Genesis, A Living Conversation. And that TV show actually revolutionized people's approaches to Bible in the non-Orthodox world. Because all of a sudden it was kosher to talk about the Bible seriously without seeming like some nutcase that you're know, just like a Bible thumper or something, because it, it showed some sophistication of the Bible. There was this guy, Bill Moyers, and he, he filmed these discussion groups in the Bible, and Bibelow decided that they wanted to do a discussion group like Bill Moyers in their store live uh, on the night before Bill Moyers' first show. So they invited me, for whatever reason, to be one of the panelists. I used to hang out in Bibelow a lot. I was in the Judaics section a lot. So one of the people like, hey, you know, and struck up conversation when they got to know me. It's like, would you like to be part of this panel discussion? I was like, sure, fine, no problem. Actually echoes in my valedictorian speech. Like I know <laughs> what I was getting into, right? And then I could promptly forgot about it and, you know, did no preparation. And then so Bibolo calls me three months later and it's like, oh, we just wanted to let you know, you know, you're doing this thing in our store. It's this panel discussion on the Bible, it's in a week ready. from now, <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh, so what, what are we talking about? Is there like a topic? Yeah, we're gonna talk about Jacob's deception of Isaac and Esau. And I said, <laughs> oh, that, that's interesting. Who else is gonna be talking? Well, we had a hard time finding anybody. So it's just gonna be you and the chairman of the Department of Philosophy from the College of Notre Dame. So it was then that I realized that I was gonna be the sacrificial rabbi, right? And nothing I had ever experienced had prepared me for that. I was just like, what, what did I learn in yeshiva that was going to help me navigate this narrative that seemed to be a font of anti-Semitism for 2000 years? It just was a very difficult thing to talk about. So that kind of forced me to really go back into the text and really start 
trying to make an argument from the text and drawing on whatever skills that I had had back from Berkeley, from Rabbi Leibowitz, back from my experience in college and MLA degree, analysis of literature, back in Rabbi Speed Berkowitz this year in Neri Yisrael in terms of meta-analysis of Gemara text, and somehow take that whole cornucopia of you know, nascent skills and try to apply them to this biblical text, because you couldn't just say, well, Rashi says that Asaph was a bad guy, so he got whatever he deserved, right? He deserved to be tricked and deceived in the story. You really had to sort of make an argument from the text. It was my first experience in that. I remember I, I, I then, I actually knew the professor who I was going to be talking with. He was one of my college professors at Hopkins, actually. Uh, he moonlighted there as well. So I called him up and I invited him for dinner and chaps. If you remember chaps. I do. My bar mitzvah was at chaps. <laughs> there you go. The, the kosher restaurant, kosher Chinese restaurant in Baltimore. I sat down. I presented my theory to him. I said, what do you think? He really liked it. He said, great, let's co-present it. He hadn't prepared anything. So we co-presented it. And he was like my stempel. You know, he, he, he was my seal of approval. It was a secular audience, mostly 150 people. They were really into it. And serendipitously, this successful attempt at public speaking came right in the middle of my midlife crisis. I was figuring out what to do. And I kind of parlayed that. People said, like, can you guys come back and do that again? So we did. And every month we did that. And that was really the beginning of this new stage in my life of let's see if we can look at biblical text seriously and what emerges from that. And a lot of beautiful things emerged from that, but that was kind of the beginning of that. So it's so uh, fortuitous and again, serendipitous. What's interesting is that you had been nowadays, especially, in, and we could see sort of where this began emerging. You've become synonymous, you know, in the, at least in the, the public image in the Jewish world with Bible study, you know, Torah study, Tanakh study. But as you know, as a 23 year old and a, and a, you know, a young man in, uh, yeshiva, you were involved in Talmud study and Talmud study at a high level writing for Art Scroll, which for those unfamiliar was a project aimed at translating the entire Babylonian Talmud in a sophisticated and comprehensive manner. And there was teams of scholars working on this. And that, you know, required a real depth of engagement with Talmudic texts. So it's interesting that this kind of shift happened. And was that difficult for you to make the shift? Was it unnatural as a student in a more traditional yeshiva environment where Talmud is the focus at that time? Yeah, so I, the shift in a way was kind of a coming back home for me in a way, because one aspects of my story, I think, is that I've always sort of straddled, I've straddled worlds. It's not just that I've straddled disciplines in terms of like being interested in literature and being interested in this, being interested in that and science and all these different things, but I've also straddled worlds. Um, and one of those worlds is the East Coast world, and the mid-Atlantic world of Orthodox Judaism. And the other world is, you know, my, the world of my youth, the world of the Bay Area, the world of Rabbi Leibowitz. And that world, the world of my youth was a world really focused on Tanakh, on biblical studies. I mean, that's what I heard in my sermons. That was my first exposure just to sophisticated learning. And one of the strange things that happened when my father died, my mom remarried um, and brought us out to the East Coast. And that was quite a, a change for me. I, I went from sort of long-haired 13-year-old kid in Berkeley, California to Orthodox Society in Kew Gardens, New York. Uh, I went from one Orthodox jewel two and a half miles away down all these hills to 14 Stiebloch within three blocks of you, uh, little places you could daven. It's a whole different world. And one of the things that puzzled me in making that transition was the lack of emphasis on biblical study. I could not figure it out. Like, why is everyone ignoring the Bible? Like, mm. this other was completely ignored. Again, Shalashuddha, somebody would get up and they'd say something. This the third meal on the Sabbath. Uh, somebody had a bar mitzvah, so they'd say something. But it wasn't, the people didn't spend hours studying it. And I couldn't figure out why. I said, like, it doesn't make sense with your belief system. Like, if you believe God wrote this book, right? And it's a book written by God, right? Like the Talmud is great, but let's understand that it's written by people. We all agree it was written by people. Was there divine inspiration? Okay, maybe, right? We can talk about that. Was there some sort of, right, some sort of mystical process? But, but God wrote this book, right? It's not just us. The Christians believe that. The Muslims believe that. There's some consensus around this idea. So why would we ignore that? Like, do we not think God was smart enough to write a book that was meaningful, like, you know, you got to give God a little credit. So 
it always puzzled me. And I remember I have these memories of being my first year in Israel in high school. I remember I was puzzled by this. I, I went up the lawn on the Neri's has these great lawns. And I went out with, uh, with my copy of Shmote, Exodus. And I decided like, I'm going to read this. And it's got to be that God figured out a way to write something in this where it spoke deeply to every generation, that there was real meaning in this book. And I'm going to figure this out, right? And I remember being very frustrated that I could not figure it out. As much as I tried to read it and read it and read it, it was a locked book to me. I couldn't get beyond the simple meaning of the text. And I think that's true for a lot of us, really. I mean, the real truth is, is that in retrospect and coming back to that question, like, why is it that the Bible is so, you know, more or less ignored if you tell people about this outside of Orthodox Judaism, they won't believe you. Like, it's like it's one of the best kept secrets. I remember talking to Roy Hofberger, who later on was a really important part of my life in starting the Hofberger Foundation for Torah Studies, the first body under which I did my work before Aleph Beta. And I, I remember telling him, Roy, they don't really study Bible seriously in, in rabbinical school. And he was like, are you crazy? What do you mean they don't study Bible seriously in rabbinical school? It was the strangest thing. So in retrospect, I think the reason is and, you know, there's an interesting book that I go back to on this, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, where he made, Thomas Kuhn is the one who popularized the idea of paradigms, which we use a lot when we talk about paradigms. And so he talks about paradigms in scientific study, and this is as a paradigm, as a worldview, which allows you to have some consensus. It's sort of like an operating system for research, right? So it's the same way you can't have a computer without an operating system. You're either working off of Windows, you're working off of DOS, you're working off of iOS, there's some sort of operating system that makes everything make sense. You have to have an operating system for any field of study. And I think that in Talmud, we figured out an operating system. We know how to do it. We know what the brisker derech is. We know what the, we know it, it's hard. It takes five years, seven years to really learn, but we know how to do it. So since we know how to do it, there can be consensus around how to do it. We can understand what a good question is, what a not good question is. There's, a, there's consensus we can discuss, but there is no consensus in Bible. It's almost like there is no paradigm. So everyone's in search of a paradigm. So if nobody knows what a good question is, if nobody understands what an agreed upon method of research is, what the basic tools are, so you're left with something that is not really a ripe field for study. You can't do it. You can't create a yeshiva. And I think that's the real answer as to why we haven't done it. Now, I do think that we used to have it, but I think it was lost. My theory is, is that the rabbis, Chazal had it, the, rabbi, the sages of the Talmud, and they say, right, they had an actual coherent approach to biblical study, but they weren't overt about it. They kept it among themselves. It was almost like a, a secret society, like this is how Bible is learned. And they had ways of doing it. They had ways of doing it, for example, if you think about it, even now, Ari, if you, if you even think about the ways we learn Gemara, if you're really honest about it, there's certain questions you can ask in Gemara and there's certain questions you can't ask. Like, for example, if I ask you, Ari, so what do you think the Rashba Svara was? Like, how come he argues with the Ritva in his analysis of Tukva Cohen? So you could have a robust conversation with me about that, right? But if I ask you, so it says on page 3B of Kedushin that the reason why we know that money works to betroth the woman is because of this verse that says, Right, and the woman goes free without money, and that's the slavery thing. And no, the there's this relationship between the slave and the father, and the strange kind of thing. And the sages make this ex exegetical reading of the verse. What was the logic behind that exegetical reading? What were they thinking behind that? Explain that to me. What? Well, how did they exactly make that derivation? You would say, Foreman, you you you're breaking an unwritten rule of Talmud study. We don't ask how Chazal made their drushas. They made their drushas. They had their way, they had their methodology. It's almost like there's a tacit understanding that the ancient sages way of approaching biblical text is lost to us. But we start from after that. And we start with the oral law and we take whatever they had with the written law as a given. And then we start with the oral law. And I guess for me, the long answer to your short question is, it was a natural outgrowth of Gemara. In other words, it was clear in Gemara that the sages 
were taking biblical text seriously, but we didn't know how to relate to the ways they were doing it. It was, it's almost like the same in yeshiva. How much time do they spend in the morning in Eon Seder and the time when we really learn as deeply as we can in the Gemara? How much time do we spend on Agadata, on those portions of text that are the, the sages' uh, ethical expositions on Bible? We don't know how they did it, so we don't feel like we have the tools. What I'm happy that I was able to spend the last 20 years on, I think, is actually working on an approach that isn't really so new, but I think is old. It's a way of uncovering techniques that I think are the oldest techniques that we have in biblical study that were the fundamentals of what the rabbis of those stages, those days were using when they made those that kind of exegesis. What's interesting though, is that I think the secular academy does have a paradigm for this, right? And the issue is that it's a paradigm that precludes the possibility that it was divinely authored but they do apply, you know, tools of literary analysis. And, and obviously that's how you come up with, high, uh, you know, documentary hypothesis and, and related theories. So I, I guess, you know, is that your goal is to kind of reconstruct a more authentically Jewish version of that so that we can apply some sort of methodology, but one that is, you know, with a yarmulke basically? <laughs> I mean, yes and no. In other words, and for this, I would recommend readers can take a look at the introduction to my book, The Exodus You Almost Passed Over, where I talked about what kind of book this is in those terms. And basically what I said, I don't remember the exact, the introduction is going to say it more eloquently than I can say it now. But basically I said, look, describing what I'm trying to do or describing the kind of book that that is, it's easiest to describe it by what it's not. So what it's not on the one hand is sermonics, right? Or Shalashudas Torah. What's my definition of Shalashudas Torah or sermonics? My definition of Shalashudas Torah or sermonics is when you come up with an ethical teaching because you think it's very important to have ethical teachings in the Bible. I say, what ethical teaching do I want to hit my audience over the head with? So you come up with an ethical teaching that you want to hit your audience over the head with. So you say, okay, what verse can I use to substantiate that? So you go back, you find a verse, you think, I think I can hang it on that verse. And then you make a whole thing, you know, where you try to hang it on that verse. Reverse engineering. It's reverse engineering. <laughs> But usually it doesn't feel to the audience organic. It doesn't feel like that ethical teaching really emerged from the verse. People can see through your artifice and they know that you had that teaching from before, that you just thought it was reasonable, that you're just using it as a coat and hanger kind of thing coming from the verse. They don't really feel like you're learning the Bible. You're using the Bible as an accoutrement to an idea that you already wanted to talk about. So that's not so revelatory and people aren't turned on by that kind of sermonics. I wasn't interested in writing that kind of book. Now, the opposite side of that, I want to write a serious book. So then the opposite would say, well, you want a serious book, so go to the academy. The, the, acad the academics are serious. They're very rigorous. They have these scientific methods of analyzing Bible. Yeah, but the problem is, is that nothing emerges from there. In other words, no ethical teachings immerse in there. They're not interested in ethical teachings. They're not interested in the whole idea of meaning of the Bible, right? The Bible has meaning? No, it was this document from the ancient Near East that was cobbled together by a lot of different people. We can analyze it and reverse engineer it and see historical trends, but there's no, God isn't involved. There's nothing divine about it. There's nothing mysterious about it. There's nothing holy about it. And it's not really teaching us anything. So we can take it apart but you take it apart. And one way of seeing it, by the way, even in the tools, typically in the academy, the tools that they're using are deconstructive tools. What they're doing to use a fancy, to use a less fancy word for it, is they're taking apart a grandfather clock. But the problem is when you take apart a grandfather clock, if you're not careful, all you're left with is a mess on the floor, right? I can show you this piece and I can show you that piece. I can but I don't have anything. I just have the pieces of, of a clock. So the question is, is there something more than that? What I wanted to do was show that there's something more than that, to use academic tools for the opposite of deconstruction. And the opposite of deconstruction is actually to bring things together in surprising ways, rather than to take them apart. And I think what, in answer to the academy, right, that says that there is no meaning because it's an inherently disconnected text with five different streams that don't really relate to each other. What I would show you is the actual opposite of that, which is I would show you that across the text, chapters that you would think have nothing to do with each other actually rhyme and resonate with each other in fascinating ways 
right? To create almost like the first great internet in history. If I would ask you, what would the internet look like before electricity? You know, you can make a lot of money on this question. If I'd said, what would internet 2.0 look like? Take our internet and imagine a more sophisticated internet, right? What would that look like? A more sophisticated internet would be, okay, imagine hyperlinks. What if, right, the internet is great. It's got an interconnectivity of information that has revolutionized the information world and made information the hot commodity, hotter than real estate, hotter than everything else, just through a simple thing called hyperlinks, just through interconnecting information. Think about the power of that. It's that if disconnected information is not powerful, but connected information is very powerful, right? That's the whole idea of the internet. Internet 2.0 is what if you could take interconnected information to the next level? What if you could revolutionize hyperlinks? What if you could have hyperlinks, which have instead of just taking you from one place to another across a body of information, a hyperlink actually opened up a window of understanding that if I clicked on this hyperlink, I could understand tar my target text B from the perspective of this hyperlink in text A. And I could do that again from another text and from another text and another text. What I'm doing really, I think, is that, which is I'm trying to show that the Torah is a kind of internet before electricity. The hyperlinks are language cues that resonate from text to text. And it's the Torah's own way of using its own text to comment upon itself in a multi-layered kind of way. And to me, you could call that academic, but it's not what the academics are doing. In a way, it's the inverse of what they're doing. And rather than leading to a deconstruction and a trivialization of meaning of the text, I think it, it leads to a kind of marvelous integration and a bringing of meaning to a whole new level. How, how has that approach been received by secular academics? Do they see it as kind of like a, a bit of a cop-out or a sellout and like, oh, you're just trying to inject meaning or impose meaning where, or order where really it's just chaos? Or do people respect it and say, okay, this is a, this is a reasonable alternative? Look, it depends what you mean by, by academics, right? I would say there is a branch of this in academia. It's a small branch in academia. The closest that you have in an academia is guys like Robert Alter in Cal in, actually, interestingly enough, in Berkeley, in my hometown, right? Robert Alter has a taste of this. So if you read Robert Alter's book, The Art of Biblical Poetry, for example. So I actually have a piece, which is very, I, I was Mechava to Robert Alter, actually one of my earliest pieces, uh, which is an analysis of Genesis 38, sort of Yudin Tamar, which I have recorded in al Beta. If you, if you read it now, you'll see the seeds of it in Robert Alter. Now, Robert Alter didn't, I didn't read Robert Alter and he didn't see my thing, but we kind of independently came to, um, to similar approaches. Um, so it's there a little bit with Robert Alter. It's there within the Orthodox world in Israel at Michalat Herzog. The whole Herzog College is devoted really to, to a similar kind of approach. Guys like Yoni Grossman, who's a professor at Bar Ilan, this is his thing. And Yoni Grossman, who's taken this approach into the academic world, quotes me all the time. In the, uh, he doesn't really speak English that well, but you know, we've had conversations. He got turned on to my material and he watches all the beta videos because <laughs> that's where it is. He actually berates me a lot because he says, I shouldn't just be putting this out for the popular audience. I should be putting it out for the academic audience and I should be writing academic articles. And his argument, which I have some sympathy for, is he says, I remember I sat with him I, it was right after I put out our video on Rachel's Tears, The Power of Rachel's Tears, which you can find on alifeta.org. One of our most wonderful videos in a way. It was a, an intertextual read of, of Jeremiah 31 and the story of the mandrakes, the Dudaim in Genesis. And I'm going through it with him and he was like really blown away with it. And he's like, stops me and he says, where can I find this? I said, well, it's, it's a video right over here. I said, I said, I know, but where can I, show me the article. Like I want the asset, where is your... He said, you didn't write this up? I said, no, I didn't write this up. But he says, you can't do that. You can't come up with something like this. He says, you're violating the unwritten code of academic brotherhoods. Like there is an understanding among people that if you come up with a find at this level, you have to put it out there to the academic community so that they can build on it, right? You can't just 
keep things to yourself. You've got, you have to let people build on things. And he was very mad at me about that. And I, frankly, I, it's still an ambition of mine to actually take what I'm doing and bringing it into and footnote it properly and bring it into the academic world. I've written some books with some footnotes, but not in academic style. Part of that is because I don't have that much interest in the academy. It's not who I'm trying to influence. I think the real goal is the Jewish world and really the world at large, most of whom are not academics. And, and so that's who I'm really writing for. To me, my passion lies almost in the opposite of, of academia, which is if academia is about keeping a sort of elite body of knowledge, what I'm trying to do is take elite knowledge and democratize it. The challenge for me is how can you take some of the most sophisticated ethereal thought and bring it down without oversimplifying it and democratize it so that it's available to literally anybody who wants to access it, which is kind of why I liked Art Scroll and why the, the Art Scroll Talmud project appealed to me, right? It was that. I remember years back before Art Scroll, when I was in Ruth Spies here, Roy Svi Berkowitz, I remember challenging myself to take the sophisticated concepts he was talking about and to try to write them in plain English without any Hebrew words at all, to write my notes in a way that was an article that even if you didn't study Talmud, you'd be able to understand it. And I still have my notebooks from trying to do that. It was a very, it was a proto art scroll kind of attempt to do that. And then art scroll comes along and sort of tries to do a version of that with their art scroll Talmud. But I'm trying to do a version of that with Tanakh, but that's not where the heart and mind of the Academy is. Well, it's a great segue though, that, that sense of democratization, because your website, Aleph Beta, really, I guess, is kind of the outgrowth of, of all the years of teaching that you did. And you, you had this Hofberger Institute where you were teaching classes all over the Baltimore community and doing all kinds of, and then writing books um, as well. But Aleph Beta seems to be the kind of this pinnacle of this project where you are creating these very catchy and almost cutesy videos in animation and things like that really the absolute opposite of what you'd find, you know, in an ivory tower intellectual academy, but with the same ideas that you're translating over there. Why did you choose to go that direction? How did that project and this particular iteration crystallize? I mean, so first of all, again, the idea behind it more or less is this, it's democratization. It's a, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the videos, right? The, it, it's, it's funny, Aleph Beta, right? Because it's animated videos, but it, it looks like cartoons. So you look at Aleph Beta and it looks like, okay, this is for my six-year-old, right? But then if you watch it, it's like, no, this is not for my six-year-old, right? It's sophisticated stuff, it's for adults. And I realized that's a little funny. It just kind of happened. We got some video artists to help me out. It's the style we develop, but there, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. I'll give you an example of it. There was last night, my son who just became Bar Mitzvah Abichai, he showed me something beautiful. He's, he got turned on to classical music recently. He's been taking music lessons with a, um, a classically trained musician in Israel who's actually coming from the world of Satmar, believe it or not. He's a Satmar chassid from Austria, from, from uh, I think from Austria maybe originally. And he, he kind of left the Sautner world, became a regular Orthodox Jew, right? But is, is uh, one of the leading world experts in classical guitar. Um, he's been a soloist in Israel with the Hebrew University Symphony Orchestra. He's a big guy. Anyway, so he's taken, a, he and Avichai have developed a relationship and he's taking, and Avichai's taking music lessons on Zoom during the pandemic with, with him, David Frankel. If any of your listeners wanna email David Frankel, you could probably snag another couple slots with him. But it's been wonderful for Avichai. He's like opened Avichai up to the whole world of classical music. Most kids, you know, at 13, they're interested in rock music and all that. Avichai couldn't hear less about rock music. You wish it was, you wish it was rock music. It's right. really a lot more. And Schubert and Chopin and Beethoven. It's Ava, you know, which Beethoven piece do you like the best? And it's like, you know, do you think I should be teaching my show of Chopin's Waltz in A minor? And it's like, you know, he's going through all of this <laughs> stuff that he is. So anyway, so he was talking to me. He says, you know, David, his teacher in Israel, he says he really doesn't like Franz Liszt. And I says, what does he like about Franz Liszt? He says, well, Liszt, he's got these great ideas, musical ideas. But then he like has these tunes that are at war with themselves. And he, he interrupts his ideas. And David thinks it's all broken up. So Avichai says, let me show you something really funny. So he shows me, he found on YouTube, a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Do you remember Tom and Jerry? I sure do. 
right? Cat and mouse. So he shows me this Tom and Jerry cartoon. He says, Avi, you have to watch this all the way through. So he sat there with 10 minutes and it was hilarious. And it was this 10 minute cartoon where there was no speaking and all it was, was Franz Liszt Hungarian Rhapsody. And it was this piece of music, but what they had done was they had animated it with Tom, the cat, playing this at the piano, right? And Jerry, the mouse, is inside the piano and is at war with Tom. And so there's these two attempts, right? They're, they're battling each other, right? Within the piano and outside the piano. And they time everything perfectly in the music. So it's almost like there's this running commentary on Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody, right? That you actually understand the piece better by watching this Tom and Jerry cartoon. And it's hilarious. It's also musical comedy. And I'm thinking, like, is this for kids? Right? It's like, you know, and it's like, no, but kids will watch it because it's animated and it's funny and funny things are happening. So what happens is you're you're writing something for adults as inside jokes for adults who are musical aficionados who are like your inner circle of friends, but you're opening it up to the world because it's animated and it's cute and it's a Tom and Jerry video and a lot of people will see it and each person will get it the way they get it. And in a way, that's what Alatheta kind of is, right? And, and so six-year-olds and seven-year-olds will watch it and all these people will watch it, but it is a sophisticated kind of thing. In terms of how it happened, it happened almost surreptitiously without my knowledge. There was uh, Kuti Shalev, who was the president of, of Aleph Beta and of the Hofberger Foundation. So years ago, he came to a talk. He was very taken with what I was doing and he sat me down at the restaurant. And he has a company that incubates startups. Um, it's called Clever Tech. If you're wearing your Olami hat, you might want to make a, a connection with them and mentorship and stuff like that. He has a very successful company called Clever Tech. And he's interested in taking startups and incubating them and building them out. And so he looks at what I'm doing and says, there's a successful startup here, right? And, and like, I see a company here. So I'm like, I'm not in company land. I'm just doing my own thing. And he's like- Even though you were raised in Silicon Valley. <laughs> even though I was raised in Silicon Valley, but it was before it was Silicon Valley. That's right. So, he, so what happens is he buys me this tablet, like Salman Khan, right? That you can like connect to a computer. He says, play around with this. So I started playing. So for a long time, I was dusty on my shelf. A year later, I start playing around with it. And I was like, hey, I can make videos with this. That's really cool. And I was like, I start making these little rudimentary videos and I sent them to Kuti. And Kuti, without even telling me, hires a, a video editor, right? And gives it to the video editor to like make them a little bit better. And it's like, so he literally started this company behind my back and then creates this website and puts them out on this website. And before you know it, all of Theta was born. And so, and then it just kind of grew from there. Why the name Aleph Beta, by the way? What What is the uh, going So the name actually comes originally from Arya Lightstone, who was originally associated with our company. Now he's gained fame as the uh, chief of staff for uh, the- uh, David Friedman. Yeah. For David Friedman in Israel and the, the founder of the, in a way, the Abraham Accords and Arya Lightstone has been working on those. But Arya Lightstone years ago was with us and it was the brainchild of him that particular name. The truth is it doesn't really fit what we're doing. Aryeh had a little bit of a different vision of trying to use technology to be a platform for educators across the world. And so he had the name Aleph Beta, which was just supposed to signify Aleph for traditional Jewish knowledge and Beta for technology and the marrying the two of them. And then it sort of morphed into a company that was focused on my methodology and what I was doing and we never rebranded. You know, maybe one day we should. Um, it's a strange name. It kind of works. It's a problematic name in a way because people mispronounce it. Is it Aleph Beta? Is it Alpha Beta? Is it Aleph Bet? Nobody quite gets it. And it's hard because if you're an internet company, you have to spell it correctly. So for the users who'd like to get there, who are confused Please. about how, how to write Aleph Beta, A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A dot O-R-G, the easy way to do it is A-B dot video. AV.video oh. that takes you straight to us and you can subscribe to $9 a month, but you can get it for free for half an hour free a month and uh, dive in. It's an exciting way to get your feet wet in learning Bible for real, or you can download the app. If you have a smartphone, just search for Torah videos. The first thing that pops up is off beta Torah videos, just download our app um, and you can get to it from there. Awesome. My, my final question, David, is with everything you've done, you know, we live in such an open world now. 
a world you know where where even people from the most insular and traditional communities you know if they're curious and if they're searching type individuals they they very often will encounter a panoply of ideas and maybe foreign ideas and challenging or threatening ideas to traditional religious ideology we talked briefly about biblical criticism do you view yourself as being someone who's offering sukkah or offering cover so to speak to people that have grown up in a more traditional environment and want to intellectually defend their positions vis-a-vis the authorship of the Bible? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I write about that and a kind of funny story in the introduction to another one of my books, uh, Parsha Companion on Genesis, a story where uh, I was in Johns Hopkins doing my first class that I taught at Johns Hopkins University. And again, this is, you asked about, asked about the academy. In the beginning, I was sort of in the academy. I was teaching at Johns Hopkins. I taught some credit courses, some non-credit courses, and what was interesting is that they really thought what I was doing fit there. Uh, Tom Crane was the dean of the department that I was in. And, and I remember one of my conversations with him, he said, what you're doing is at the heart of a liberal arts college, right? What is a liberal arts college other than a place that is supposed to give you the tools to master the core texts of the Western intellectual tradition? At least it used to be. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's what, at least it used to be. That's what it's supposed to be, to gain the skills to be able to read these things critically. And he said, that's why what you're doing is so valuable. You're giving these students these critical reading capabilities, which, by the way, you know, has been borne out in other ways, too. I remember Surrey Teitelbaum, the Rebbitson of uh, Young Israel, Lauren Cedarhurst. She uses my material to teach an honors class in Chumash at Hafter. And she says the kids' SAT scores go up meaningfully because their ability to analyze text critically, it, you know, is going up from their experience of doing it with Chumash. So anyway, the story is, so I was at Hopkins and I was teaching uh, my first class there and the folks really got into it. It was a non-credit course for adults and there were a whole cross-section of the Jewish and non-Jewish community and in Baltimore ended up taking that course. Roy Hofberger and his wife took it. And they petitioned the dean to continue the course when it was over because they really liked it. So we did a follow-up course, another eight sessions. And at the last session, one of the guys in the back of the room was a medical school professor at Johns Hopkins University, raised his hand and said, can I ask a question here uh, more broadly? So I said, sure, shoot. So he said, can you say something about the authorship of the Bible? So I'm like shifting nervously and I I, I start getting defensive because that wasn't my thing. I was like, okay, Here's the Bible. We all agree, at least, that this is a classic of Western literature. So let's dive in and learn it, right? And really, that's my approach. My approach is don't start with preconceived notions. Check your preconceived notions at the door and look at it as a text. I don't care about authorship. I don't want you to walk in and say, as a precondition for reading this, you have to believe God wrote it, right? Or the precondition for reading No. All you have to believe is that it's a, that it might be a meaningful work. Let's invest the time to really read it on its own terms, to listen to it and try to discern how it wants to be read. One of the things most deeply I'm interested in doing is I think it's almost like a therapy skill. I mentioned I was interested in psychology. In therapy, one of the things they teach you is listening, active listening. But one of the deepest things you have to do when you're listening to someone is you have to ask yourself, how does this person want to be listened to? What is their style of talking? What's happening with them? What are their verbal tics? What are their cues? And each person talks in a different kind of way. And you can't listen to one person the way you listen to another. You have to pick up how they want to be listened to. So when you listen to the Bible, you have to pick up how does the Bible want to be listened to? How is the Bible talking? What is it doing that I need to listen to? And if you listen to it in that way, you begin to see its magic. And then forget about who wrote it, but look at its magic. Now, so anyway, so he goes, so he says, can you say something about the authorship of the Bible? So I said, so what do you mean? He says, well, look, I was always taught that the Bible was this fragmented document and there was, you know, there's the E author and there was the J author and there were all the, and then there was the, the, an editor that put it all together, but there were these different things, you thought the seams, but like, I don't see how that could be true because it's also integrated. I mean, Genesis integrates with numbers, with integrates with Deuteronomy. There's all these layers of meaning underneath the turf of the surface that goes across this interwoven net of information. I just don't see how multiple authors not in sync with each other could have possibly created an integrated text like that. And I didn't even pay him to say that. Right? So again, I think, yes, 
people from an Orthodox background who are encountering secular approaches to the Bible will find this work meaningful. I don't directly address biblical criticism. Maybe one day I'll write a book doing that or address secular approaches. But I think that we have nothing to be ashamed about in front of the Academy with this document. This document is a book like no other. I'm actually thinking of launching a podcast with that name, a book like no other. It really is a book like no other. And we can stand up with a great sense of pride to sense that we are the people of the book and this is our book. Beautiful. What a very fitting and beautiful way to end. And I know it kept you even longer than uh, we intended. So I could go on for many more hours. It's fascinating to me, but we've at least touched the surface here. And those more interested in learning again, olivebeta.org or ab.video to watch the videos there and also read uh, some wonderful, wonderful books that I imagine are also linked on the site. Yes, the books, you can get them. You can order them from our site. You can order them wherever you like. Wonderful. Rabbi David Foreman, thank you so much for joining us. Ari, great talking to you. We'll have to do it again. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.